0: Well, tonight we're going to be jumping into a different book. We finished Hebrews last week. Tonight we're going to go and start 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, you can jump over to 1 Timothy. And this is different than studying a book like Hebrews, where Hebrews is written to a large group of people, trying to exhort them, trying to teach them certain things about Jesus, trying to get a large group to change the way they live their life and do things. This is written from one person to another it's written from a mentor to a mentee it's written to a specific person about issues that are going on in the church and it's got so much brilliant application for you and for me but i think us for us to really appreciate all that application we have to get to know who the author is so it's this guy named paul and to get to know paul you have to go all the way back to jesus so jesus he came jesus lived Jesus died. Jesus resurrected from the grave. Jesus ascended into heaven. And now Jesus is seated seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And right now there's two groups of people that are forming. There are people who love Jesus and there are people who hate Jesus. And one of arguably one of the guys who hates Jesus the most is this dude named Paul. Paul is going around attacking Christians. He's dividing homes. He's taking men and women and putting them into prison. The first time that we're introduced to Paul, he's actually stoning a believer to death. He's he's there, everyone is, is attacking this man, and Saul is the guy, Saul Paul, who is saying, yeah, we're gonna kill him, we're getting rid of this guy. Paul believes everyone who follows Jesus deserves to be slaughtered. So he's not the guy who's riding into town on his donkey with a coexist sticker on the back. Like he's very adamant, this is what we believe. He believes in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and he sees Jesus as a threat to that God and not as Jesus as the completion of the Old Testament, as Jesus is as fulfilling everything the Bible had talked about. And so Paul, his conversion is one of the greatest testaments to the fact that Jesus actually is the Christ because he's not someone who changes teams easy. He's, this is what I'm doing. I'm so adamant about it. This is what God wants me to do that I will kill people for it. And then in an instant, everything changes. In fact, what happens is Jesus is in heaven on his throne watching Paul do these things and decides he's over it. And as I was thinking about that, that really gave me a lot of encouragement that Jesus is on his throne and that Jesus actively sees what's going on in your life and what's going on in my life and sees what's right with it, sees what's wrong with it. And he's not going to let things go that don't deserve to be let go, that Jesus is going to judge everything, that Jesus is in control, that Jesus sees he remembers you, he hears you, he knows you. And so Jesus is in heaven. Paul is doing all this stuff, and Jesus decides, no more. So Jesus actually gets off of his throne, comes down to earth again, and knocks Paul down and says, no more. He says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And Saul goes, uh, Paul, Saul's interchangeable name, he goes, who are you, Lord, which is really wise, that if God comes and knocks you down because of the life you're living, start off by calling him Lord. Start by saying, okay, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you want me to do. He goes, who are you, Lord? And he changes. He becomes a missionary for Jesus, going out and suffering in the name of Jesus and in boldness and in courage, proclaiming that Jesus is God, that you have to know Jesus. He starts raising up churches. He starts discipling people. He starts getting. Everyone that he can come into contact with, he's going to let them know Jesus is God. You have to get to know Jesus. Does a complete 180. And so on one of his missionary trips, his very first one, he meets this guy named Timothy. And so Timothy is a guy who was raised by his mom and his grandma, knows the Old Testament. They brought him to church every single Sunday and Wednesday. He went to all the Bible studies. And when Paul got introduced to him and told him about Jesus, he's all in. And Paul just starts to love this kid. And so Paul gets Timothy, he gets Titus, he gets a group of young guys, and he disciples them. He trains them. He teaches them all about Jesus. And then Paul trusts Timothy so much that there becomes an issue at a church in Ephesus. And so Paul says, okay, Timothy, you're gonna go there and you're gonna handle it. So Timothy goes, and this letter that we have tonight to study is to Timothy, addressing the issues that they have, reminding Timothy, hey, this is what's really important. This is what you have to know. These are things that are happening in the church that have to be fixed. It's a brilliant letter, because honestly, the church, even back then, was not a building that people would come to twice a week, sometimes only once a month, to go and hear about God. And it's still not that today. The church is you and me. The church is every person who calls Jesus Lord, who follows King Jesus, we're the church. And so this has so much application for you and me and how we're to deal with everyday life, our neighbors, our spouses, our kids, our friends, our coworkers. It's got tons of application for us. So this is what tonight is. It's the first chapter of 1 Timothy, and Paul is going to address what the message of the church is. There are people teaching whacked out stuff in Timothy's church that he's going to, But for you and me, we get to consider for ourselves, what is the message, what's my message? So here's what Paul says the message of the church needs to be. First thing is keep the main thing the main thing. The second thing is Jesus came to save and to partner with sinners. And the third thing is this is war. So first off, Keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's read verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul is sending Timothy to this church because they're talking about stuff, that isn't necessarily the most important thing. They've stopped making the main thing the main thing. They've stopped talking about Jesus primarily and how everything in the Old Testament all comes to completion, is all fulfilled by Jesus. That for you and me, all the stuff that our souls have been longing for, all the things that your heart desires, everything that you have your mind set on that you're hoping for is all completed and fulfilled and received in Jesus. And instead... They're focusing on, on myths and genealogy and speculation, and probably a lot of it is good stuff. It's sincere stuff. It's, they're reading their Bible and they're, they're caught up in the nuance of the Bible, which in and of itself isn't bad, but they've stopped talking about the main thing, and they're getting all excited about these other things. They're, start, they're teaching law, they're teaching, hey, here's all the stuff that we're not allowed to do. Let's try to keep doing that so that we can be even better Christians. Let's, let's fulfill the law, the requirements that we're supposed to, so that Jesus will love us even more. And Paul is saying, yeah, the law isn't for people who want to be associated with the name Christian. The law is for another group of people. And this main thing that you're talking about isn't the thing that you guys should be talking about. Not that it's bad, but it's not the main thing anymore. And I know this from teaching kids, whatever I'm most excited about, that's what kids Remember? the thing that I'm all excited about, whatever I'm thinking about all week, whatever the thing I have my eyes set on that I'm thinking about, the thing that wakes me up at night that I think about, whatever that is, I'm gonna talk about that. I'm gonna talk about it excitedly. And the kids that I teach, they might remember that more than they remember the story that I wanted them to teach, more than than they remember me trying to talk to them about Jesus. I got to see this actually played out in my life. So I was raised in the church, always going to church I went to christian school so I could tell you I can recite for you all of the books of the bible in song form and in alphabetical order I can tell you all of the bible trivia and I have a lot of fun with it but I did not walk with Jesus I didn't call Jesus lord he wasn't my god I was still being god over my life and so one day I was driving the pastor the pastor's kid of this church to his church and I'm not walking with Jesus and not even going to church, but I have a guitar in the back of my car. The pastor came out, saw me with his son, and I have a guitar and goes, you're our new worship leader. And I went, sure, sounds like fun. I know all the church songs, been around them. So I did that for two years and I did not know Jesus because the main thing wasn't the main thing there. He talked about good things, true things, But not Jesus. He talked about these theories and these systematic theology and this new book that he read that has this other esoteric connotation about what this thing in Genesis might mean for us, but not Jesus. He took my salvation for granted, assumed that I already knew who Jesus was, and I never got to hear about him. It took me going to Applegate to hear the Jesus message one time to go, that's what I need. Because before I'm going through, I have have personal issues, I've got dilemmas, I've got things I'm trying to work through, but I don't have Jesus. The thing that I need, I don't have. And so there's a story in the Bible in 1 Samuel where you have the the Israelites and the Philistines. And they come up to have war with each other. And the Philistines are crushing the Israelites. So the Israelites back up and they start to talk to one one another. And they go, what are we going to do? They're, def- they're totally crushing us. They, they're way more strong than us. They have way more in number. What are we gonna do? And the Israelites start to think, well, what did our dad always talk about? Our grandpa, when he used to talk about the, the wars they used to wage, what did they always make a big emphasis on? And they remembered the Ark of the Covenant. That whenever the Israelites had the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into war with them, God gave them victory. They won. So they decided, do we gotta go get the Ark? So they go back home, they get the ark, and they bring it to the battlefield. And this is what the Bible tells us, that the Philistines were filled with dread. And they started to say to one one another, what are we gonna do? There's a God on the battlefield. This has never happened before. And the, the general tells them, I'm gonna tell you exactly what you're gonna do. You're gonna fight like men, and you're gonna die like men. And then apparently that's encouraging for soldiers. I don't know, but that's what he told the Philistine army. And the Israelites are pumped because they're like, yeah, we got, we got the box. And so they go to war. And the Philistines absolutely spank the Israelites. Yeah, and they take the box. And so then the Israelites go home and they're weeping and they're lamenting. And the message that goes around town is, God abandoned us. God didn't show up. And here's the thing the Israelites did. They forgot to make the main thing the main thing and they made it about a box. They forgot that it's called the Ark of the Covenant to remind them that they follow a covenant God, a God that keeps his promises. The Ark of the Covenant, it was full of the stones that God had wrote the law on, the staff that budded that was Aaron's. It was adorned with symbolism all on the outside of it to remind the Israelites, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is the God who delivered us. This is the God who redeemed us, who restored us. If he didn't fail them, he's not gonna fail me. If he provided for them, he's not going to provide for me. And instead of bringing God on the battlefield, they brought a box on the battlefield. And I felt like that happened with me growing up because I didn't get the Jesus. I didn't get the main thing. And when we do that on accident, kids get ran over because of it. We all have a main thing. You can see it on your Facebook feed. You can see it on your Instagram. If you're younger, you can see it on your TikTok. It's the thing that you think about, that you focus on, the thing that you think, man, if I just had this or if I could be this, it could be work stuff, it could be career aspirations, it could be relationships. Everything that we can get focused on can become our main thing, our main message, the thing that your your kids think that you're all about. And what I love is how Paul opens his message. Paul opens by saying, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our savior. That's where he starts. I love that. He starts out by saying, God is our savior. Whatever else you think is going to save you, your work, your work ethic, your attitude, this promotion, this, the stuff you're responsible for, the amount of money you have, all of that will fail you. All of that's just a box. When you actually go to war with it, it's not going to do what you hope it's going to do. It's going to fail you. God is your savior. And of Christ Jesus, our hope. Everything else this world has, the very best that it can try to throw at you, no. Jesus alone is our hope. And the people who live this out, the people who get this, they get that verse five, life. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Man, don't you want that for your kids? Kids that just, they love their insincerity, that they care for other kids, even when they have kids that are being terrible to them. Wouldn't you love to work in a workplace where all your coworkers were like that? They made Jesus the main thing. There was no backstabbing. There was no passive aggressive emails or texts. There was just sincere faith and love. They kept the main thing, the main thing. Man, that's who we gotta be. That's who we as the church are called to be. People who keep the main thing, the main thing. And if you don't, it gets weird. What happens is when you don't, you end up like the Israelites on the battlefield where you wig out about every single thing. Anytime there's a change in election, anytime there's a change in the news, anytime there's a change to whatever you have your hope in, you'll wig out about it. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. The second thing that Timothy talks about is Jesus came to save and partner with sinners. So verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love thou are in Christ Jesus. This verse is one you gotta have underlined in your Bible. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God, Jesus, came to save and partner with sinners. So you have Paul, who he, he tells us these things about himself. He was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was a insolent opponent. Don't you think that if God comes and changes your life totally radically. He shows up one day, knocks you down, turns you around, tells you to raise churches, tells you to encourage disciples, tells you to walk with people. Aren't there some things from your past that you think, you know what? I think I'm going to bury that. I don't know that Timothy really needs to know the extent of my sin and my sinfulness cuz I want him to look up to me, you know? So I'm I got everything all together, Timothy. I think all of us have a propensity to do that, where we decide, well, you know, I'm a Christian, so you know, I've never done anything wrong in my whole life, and that's why Jesus chose me. You know, there's part of us, I think, especially when we look at pastors, we look at a lot of pastors and we go, man, that guy must have the most amazing marriage, and he should. He probably has the most obedient kids. Yeah, right. But he's probably got everything all together because he's the pastor. But here's what's so awesome about Paul. Paul. He doesn't let Timothy think that. And he, he's very out front about it. In his opening letter, in the very beginning of it, he goes, yeah, remember who I am. Remember who I was. I was the worst. And I, I love my mom and my dad. And so I, when I came back from San Diego, I showed up at my mom's house and no one was there, my mom and dad's house. And so I decide I'm gonna do something very loving for my dad. I know some of you know this story. I'm gonna take care of some yard work. So I looked outside and there's some blackberry bushes that have been a struggle at this house. Every year we rip them up, we burn them, and they come back. There's nothing you can do about blackberry bushes in Oregon, they will exist. And so I looked at it and I went, you know what? I'm gonna take care of that for my dad, because I love him. So I go out to the garage, I grab the machete, and as I come outside on the deck, I notice, oh my goodness, there are blackberry bushes next to the house. They're just letting this place fall apart when I don't live here. But thank goodness I'm here. So I go down there. And I start, I go, i am go caveman on them. Like I'm tearing this thing up. My shirt is getting all ripped up from thorns. Like I'm just, I'm going at this thing. And just to be safe, make sure that they never come back. I salt the earth after, you know, like I just want to make sure that this is done. Just kidding. But they're gone. Like they're destroyed. And so I hear a car come down and I go, yeah, these are pretty well beaten up. Nothing, nothing will survive that. So I go back upstairs. I'm winded. I'm tired. I got the machete and it's my mom. And my mom says, hey, Jess, what are you doing here? I go, well, you know, I just was thinking, I had an open day, I appreciate you guys, I wanted to do some yard work for you. She goes, oh, that's awesome. I go, yeah, so I took care of some blackberry bushes, and she looks behind me, and there's like all the blackberry bushes still there, and she's like, oh, well, keep going at it. And I go, well, you know, I started off the ones on the side of the house. She goes, there are no blackberry bushes on the side of the house. And I go, well, not anymore. I took care of them. And I could see realization like start, like in her eyes, And just see, like, disappointment. And then she said, did you kill my raspberries? I guess raspberries, they take a few years for them to grow fruit, and this was that year. So she had put all this effort, all this tender care into it, and then I destroyed it. Here's the worst part. That was eight years ago. I've gone through eight Thanksgivings with my brother, who every time we're eating something, he goes, man, this would taste so good with some homegrown raspberries. Don't you think? And you go, man, I love homegrown raspberry pie. I don't know why we never have that. Man, I just, it's so, don't you think, Justin? Isn't that so good? That's who my brother is, and that's just him. With Paul, with me and the raspberries, don't you think that there would be an immense amount of guilt and of shame just recurring in Paul's head? The church isn't huge. Like, Paul, as he's going to places and raising up churches and raising up disciples to follow Jesus, it's very likely that he would see members of households that he tore apart to throw people in prison. It's entirely likely that he would even have seen in church or around church, Stephen's wife or Stephen's kids. Like, man, how, how how do you get past that? How can you possibly... Pursue Jesus. Teach Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and have that on your conscience. Have that weighing you down. And here's what I love about what Paul says. He goes, Jesus did not choose to use me because I knew the Old Testament, which he did. Because he had all these verses memorized. Because he was faithful and sincere. Jesus chose to use Paul because he was the worst because he's the guy that you and I would say, yeah, God can't use that guy. God can't redeem that guy. God shouldn't redeem that guy. I don't want that guy. That's who he is. Jesus wanted Paul because Jesus wanted to demonstrate the lengths of his patience, of his grace, and of his mercy so that you and I would look at him and say, man, if if God could wait for him to turn around, I think God will be patient with me. If God could show grace and mercy for Paul, I bet she has got grace and mercy for me. If God could have plans for Paul, if God can take Paul and have huge plans for him, do amazing, wonderful things for him, write 60% of the New Testament with this broken, terrible person, can't God do good things with me? God is always more than willing to use our circumstances, to use our past for his glory if we'll follow him. Matt always prays this prayer that I love where he just he 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 quotes a Bible verse and he says the Lord can restore the years that the locusts have eaten the things that feel like they've been ripped away destroyed our God can restore that and I know that we kind of beat a lot that in Hebrews one of the big things was you do not earn your love from God You don't work in order for God to love you. Jesus already did all of the work. Jesus lived the perfect life, and all of his obedience gets transferred to you. But here's something that you have to know. You absolutely need Jesus's perfect life, but you also need Jesus's death on the cross. You have to know that all the things that can make you make it hard for you to sleep at night, make you feel ashamed, everything makes you cringe, makes your stomach hurt that you're like, I can't believe I did that, I participated in that, I said that, I caused that pain to those people. All of those things, Paul would say, there's no more condemnation for that for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, would say this. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's stuff that you and me, we're tempted to hide and cover up. We're tempted to go, no, Christian Christian people don't do that. Christian people don't say that. Oh my gosh, I blew it, but I can't let anybody know that about me. A part of us might feel like we have to perform well for God to love us, and that God will love us more if, if we're obedient but we have to remember this, that Jesus, he took all of our sinful rebellion on himself on the cross. And that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing, that applies directly to you. That Jesus thought about you. Jesus knows exactly who you are. And on the cross, Jesus paid for every single sin, every single guilty thing, every single shameful thing, right then. Not just your past stuff, not the stuff that happened today, not the stuff you've thought about me since I've been talking, but everything that you will ever do. Jesus paid for all of that. There's no more guilt, there's no more condemnation. You and I are able to come to Jesus. So if you've, if you've been someone who's been striving for approval, a stri- trying to do the right things that like God can accept you. I've done all these things in the past, I just need to work, op- I need to do better. I need to be more than that. I need to make up for the stuff I've done in the past. You don't have to look any further you can rest. You can rest knowing that Jesus has completed that perfect work on your behalf. If there's stuff that you've been wrestling with, this this self-loathing, this I can't believe I've done that, I can't believe I did that, and that hurt these people, or these things happen, accept Jesus' payment for your sins, just like Paul did. And here's what happens when you actually do that, when you actually believe that Jesus has taken all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of the, your sin, all your condemnation upon himself and that it's not yours to bear anymore, you result in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Paul stops to think about this and he just has to start praising. And this is something Paul does over and over and over again in his letters, He'll start talking about Jesus and how he redeems and how he overcomes and he'll start to reflect on his life and he'll go, Jesus, thank you so much. Oh my goodness, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. All honor does belong to you. And it, what it does, is it causes him to reorient. It causes him to remember the main thing is the main thing. It's all about Jesus. His sin, instead of allowing the enemy to use it and to take him somewhere where he goes, God can't use me, I I need to get away from Jesus. His sin now brings him to a place where he goes, Jesus paid for that. Oh, it's all about Jesus. You guys have to know about Jesus. And it just sets him on fire. He will break out into praise, this guy Paul, over and over again in his letters. Because he just has to stop and go, Jesus, thank you. The psalmist, he'll write this in Psalm chapter four, verse seven, he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. That for the believer, someone who trusts in the Lord, that our worst day, where everything seems to be going wrong, you and I can tap into joy that is significantly greater than anything the world has to offer on even its very best day. The very best party with all the best wine, all the best food, all the best stuff, is nothing in comparison to what is accessible to you and me when we remember that Jesus came to save and to use sinners, not perfect people. Jesus came to save not the person that you're going to be. Jesus came to save you, and he wants to walk with you and transform your heart and move you so that you can become someone like Paul. Grab young people. Grab your kids. Take your spouse and Walk with them and make Jesus the main thing, the main thing you talk about, the main thing of the center of your life so that everything else connects and makes sense. Jesus came to save and partner with sinners. And this is the last thing Timothy says. The last thing, the message of the church is, this is war. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I've decided that I'm gonna start adding a tagline on my texts and my emails, wage the good warfare, just in count Yeah, just a little dash, right? That's just how I'll end it. Instead of like, hey, have a blessed day or God loves you, wage the good warfare. What a rad thing to say to the dude that you've been discipling, right? Like way to just get his mind focused in on what the issue is, is that this is a war. The world that we live in has always been a war and it's not a war against flesh and blood. But there's a spiritual cosmic battle going on for you, for your kids, for your spouse, for your coworkers every single day. And when you forget that, you're vulnerable. I mean, when was the last time that you actually prayed sincerely for your kids as they went to school? So probably a year ago. As if they were going into war. But get this, it's worse now, isn't it? Your kids spend eight hours of their school time on a screen, but hey, they need a break, so they're gonna sit over here and get on their screen. But then I need a break from that, so I'm gonna sit over here and get on my screen. Like, they're in a war for their attention, for their interests, for what excites them, for the stuff that people will sneak into there, what the enemy will sneak into there. There's a war going on for them. When was the last time that you prayed for your spouse as they were going into work or going into that meeting as if they were going into a battle? Because it is. When we forget that, we leave ourselves vulnerable. And Paul would know this better than just about anyone, wouldn't he? He fought for the other team venomously, and he knows it. This is war. It's like have you ever been to a football game or watched a football game, and you see the teams line up on either side? And as the ref blows the whistle, it's time to go. One team just turns and starts attacking people in the sidelines. You ever seen that happen? Me neither. I've never seen that happen. If you're sitting here tonight and you feel like you've been in a spiritual war, you feel like you've been under attack, you feel like the enemy has come at you, I want you to take hope because the enemy isn't gonna be interested in going and someone sitting on the sidelines attacking someone sitting on the sidelines. The enemy is gonna go after people like Paul and like Timothy and like you who have the ball, who wanna move the ball forward, who are saying, okay, I know who I am, but Jesus came to save even me. And Jesus, I wanna be used by you. Help me make the main thing the main thing. Use me, God. Satan's gonna come after you. Satan's gonna wanna get you out of the game because now you're a threat because now you know that if Jesus is with you, if Jesus is for you, is there anything that can ever stand against you? If our God is for you, is there anything really the enemy do that could ever stop you? No way. But when you forget that we're not in a battle, or when you forget that we are in a battle, you stop acting like it, you stop praying like it, you stop asking Jesus to partner with you like it, and all of a sudden it leaves your kids, your spouse, your coworkers, yourself, vulnerable. Never forget that this is war. Jesus came to save and partner with sinners. Keep the main thing the main thing, we're in a battle. So Jesus, I pray even today that we would remember to keep you as the center and the focus of our life, that everything else is good. Work is good, promotions are good, Even toys are good. Everything in all of creation that you've made is good. But when it becomes our main focus, when it becomes our main extreme, it it turns bad. Help us to keep Jesus the center of our lives. Help us to always remember that you came to save sinners. That I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to pretend anymore. I'm accepted. I'm significant because of Jesus and in Jesus. And for each one of us, Lord, help us to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare, to pursue and push back darkness, to fight for our kids, to fight for our spouses, to fight for our coworkers and our neighbors, even the ones that are real pains for us, Jesus. Help us to fight on their behalf. And it's in your name we pray, the name of mighty King Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming tonight.